Have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. We thank you so much for your grace in our lives, and we thank you for your goodness and mercy you show to us. Lord, daily, we could praise you for just your provision of your mercy and grace into our hearts and into our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the love that you show us so faithfully, even when we don't deserve it. Lord, we praise you for an opportunity to gather and to worship you this evening. We thank you for a great day already, Lord, this morning, an opportunity to lift up the persecuted church, to lift up our brothers and sisters that are struggling and going through such great adversities. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity you give to us as a church here to, to lift them up and to intercede for them. And so, Lord, that didn't stop just with this morning's service ending. So, again, Lord, we lift them up to you, and I pray that this would be a habit that we would develop as we would continually think of uh, those that are in bonds and in chains and have even lost their life for you. And so, Lord, again, as we celebrate you this evening and as we go into your word, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and be with everything going on tonight, Lord, that every single thing we do from the rehearsal down the hallway to our time in here, uh, Lord, may it all and for only your glory go forth. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for this opportunity. I pray you'd be glorified in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated, and all of our children for the musical can be dismissed. Workers and volunteers can head down as well. And as they are dismissed, uh, we invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel. To Daniel. So we're going to start in chapter 1. So we're going to start in Daniel. I know chapter 1 is where we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, doing one of our verse studies that we've been doing now for a while. Uh, I came across a little study. Uh, it's actually a six-week study. And this was put out by Lifeway. And so I came across this study and um, just kind of praying about and looking into some different things uh, that we can move into on Sunday evenings. And so this came across um, my attention, and so I'm kind of going to, we're going to walk through this. It's actually a six-week kind of a curriculum. Uh, I think it was kind of designed for an adult, like Sunday school or, or Bible study. Uh, and we're going to tweak it just a little bit, but I'm excited to walk through uh, the book of Daniel for just a few weeks. Um, we are not, uh, many of you have been in our Wednesday night where we're going through the book of Revelation. Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in the prophecy side of Daniel because we're going to kind of talk about some of that in the Revelation, but this is meant to be more of a practical study. And the idea of this study is the idea of developing strong convictions in the world we live in today. That, that we as followers of Christ, we desire to develop strong convictions in the world we live in today. And if you're paying attention, you're looking around, obviously our culture, and this isn't a new thing, but our culture is very much anti- Christ, anti-God, anti-things of the Bible. And this is, again, not something that's new to, our, to, our, to human history. Uh, this is something that's been true since Genesis chapter 3. But as we're Christians living in this fallen world and living in our culture, there are some things that we can assimilate to. There are some things in our culture that we can take part in and that we welcome into our lives and we express through how we live. Obviously, culture is a part of how we live and how we function. It's, it's just a part of us. Uh, a lot of times we don't even understand the things that we do that are purely cultural because they're just normal for us. But other people of other backgrounds or people groups look at what we do and they think, that's really weird. Why do you do that? And it can be as simple as what we wear, how we dress, uh, what we eat, how we eat. 
um, the kind of homes we live in. I mean, all of this can be considered cultural. Uh, holidays can be cultural. Uh, why we get together when we do, the way we sit down and have family dinners, that could be considered cultural. And so there's so many things to that. And we've got a couple of students that were in, uh, and Pastor Greg and such, that have gone to Wyumi, which is a kind of a, a missions intensive, um, kind of exposing young people and adults to tribal missions and what that looks like. And so when you go to Wyumi, one of the big things they teach you is the cultural things that we've allowed to take over the gospel. And there's things that we think are biblical or have to be a certain way, but they're really just cultural. And there's other things that are very much biblical, and they're meant to be biblical, and those are the things we stand on. And so what I'd like to do over the next six weeks, and kind of the heart of this study, this little study that we're going to do, is kind of helping us to develop biblical convictions in the midst of the culture in which we live. And not so much focus on certain preferences that we might have, but try to focus on how do we develop biblical convictions, things that will help us to be guided in this world. Uh, we have all assimilated, as we just said, to some degree or another, to the culture in which we live. Our understanding, customs, and traditions all grow out of our culture. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just what it is. But it becomes an issue when those customs and practices conflict with the biblical standard. So when a cultural custom or practice or tradition conflicts with the biblical standard, now there's an issue. doesn't mean there's always going to be an issue, but there may be. And so again, we need to sit back and kind of reevaluate and say, okay, is this a, something I can assimilate to or is this something I need to be standing against and making sure I don't conform to in the book of Daniel, we find a man, and many of us have remembered the stories of Daniel from Sunday school or junior church. Some of you are taught in junior church or children's ministry, and, and you've taught the story of Daniel in the lion's den more times than you can count. Uh, you, you've had the thing pretty much memorized because you just, it's always in children's curriculum, okay? Which I do find a little weird because it's not exactly the most child-friendly story, right? It should be a little scary to the kids, but, um, but yeah, that's something we talk about a lot, right? So that's the number, probably the number one story we think of. We think of Daniel, we think of what? Daniel in the lion's den. What's another story we think of from the book of Daniel? Popular story. Yeah, Alex. Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you're a VeggieTales fan, Rakshak and Benny, right? Which... Again, don't get me started on that whole theological concern. Um, my, my worst VeggieTales one is David and the Giant Pickle. That one, I just can't get behind the Giant Pickle with the boxing gloves. I just can't. But, but those are probably the two more famous stories from the book of Daniel. And we think about that. Another famous moment from the book of Daniel might be what? Yes. Yes. Yep, Daniel and the Hebrews, and many people assume it is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they refused to eat of the king's meat because it will violate God's law. And so again, you see they're standing on some principles here. They're standing on some things, some convictions. Um, however, they don't refuse everything that's cultural to the Babylonians. Um, so again, in Daniel, we find a man who had convictions and lived out those convictions in a culture that called for a different standard. Uh, a book that I would actually recommend, now this isn't a part of our study, so we're not going to kind of, uh, we may take something from the book at some point if the Lord leads, but um, it's separate from this study. It's a, it's a little book that we read as a staff um, probably a year and a half ago. It's, it's been a while. Um, it's by Alistair Begg, and it's just called Brave. 
So it's a little tiny, I think it's got a blue cover on it. Um, I should have grabbed it and brought it in to show you, but it's just called Brave. But really the whole point of that book is talking to this idea of how do we as followers of Christ live in a way that stands out for Christ in the culture in which we live. And when we as a staff, uh, Pastor Greg, Kelsey, and myself, when we kind of chose that book, I didn't realize that it was going to basically be a little bit of a study through Daniel, which is kind of what it was. And so really, as I I came across this study from Lifeway, um, that book instantly came to mind. So if you want to do a little more reading on this idea, that was a great resource. And so again, Alistair Begg, and the book is called Brave. So I'd recommend that. Now, as we talk about culture, we talk about customs, thinking about Daniel, obviously in what we live in as far as our world today, uh, what are some, and and this study recommends different discussion questions. So uh, I'm going to be asking some questions. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up, okay? Some of you love discussion questions. Like you live for discussion questions. You hope there's more discussion questions, okay? It's just, it's just how your brain's wired. It helps you to learn, honestly. When people ask questions and you can hear people giving answers, you're like, oh, I get it now. Some of you don't like discussion questions. Let me rephrase. Some of you don't like answering discussion questions out loud. Probably for two kind of primary reasons. One, you don't want to get it wrong. Some of your personality, you're just like, ooh, but what if I say it wrong? They're all going to laugh at me, okay? This is why you never liked in school where the teacher would, like, make you answer a question. You just, you shuddered in fear when that happened. But the other reason is not so much, I'm going to get it wrong, is you may be thinking something like just a, a fear of, well, what if I think it's this and it's not that? And then I'm shown to be wrong that way. It's more of a fear driven, not so much fear of, I just don't know the answer or fear of maybe the answer that I have is wrong. And so it's kind of based in fear. So we're going to ask, ask some questions. I want to encourage you to answer the questions, to, to talk and kind of discuss these things, because um, there's going to be quite a few of them as we go through each study has multiple questions. Um, I would also encourage you that if you're one that tends to be really apt to just want to answer the questions, like you're the kid in school that was always, the hand was always up, right? Sometimes you started answering the question before the hand got fully extended, right? You're just like, and the answer is, and your hand goes up. I'm going to ask if you would do us the favor of maybe just holding back just a little bit, okay? Sometimes some people, and I'm not one of these people, but I should be, sometimes people hear a question and they have to think about the answer. So they're processing it. Some of your personality, you're just like, no, I just, let's go. So I'm just going to ask, as we ask questions through this study, I want to get as much involvement as possible. I want you to just share what your thoughts are on it, okay? And there's not going to be questions necessarily where it's right and wrong. It's just your opinion on some of this stuff too. So the first question that they're recommending in our study, thinking about this is, what are some defining characteristics of our local culture? This is not just bad things. I know in church when we talk about culture, we instantly go to the bad things, but this could be good things too or neutral things. So what are some defining characteristics of our local culture here, this culture, our local culture? This could be Goodland Township, Michigan, United States, local to us specifically, or even our nation. So what are some defining characteristics of our local culture? What do you think? You can just start. Yeah, Jeff. What's that? Okay, sports. Absolutely. And that could be global depending on the sport, right? You go to Europe you're going to find soccer is the most important sport. Here, you're thinking about football, right? And the consuming nature of that. Okay. Okay. 
Sure. So sports in general is a big part of our culture. Some of that has come out to a bad way of taking away from more important things like gathering for church and those kind of things. But there are also sports and just a general hobby. Some people have an interest in it. Some people are consumed with it. Some people enjoy it. Some people can live without it. Like there's different levels of influence. But I think sports in a lot of ways can impact, right, our culture from playing them to involving in them, driving our kids to them, right? But there's a negative aspect of it too where it starts to infringe upon more important things, okay? Take away from more important things. What are some other characteristics or defining characteristics of our local culture? Yeah, Alex. Okay, media, yeah, it, not even just TV. It could be TV, social media, right? Just media is a big part of our local culture, absolutely. What'd you say, Julie? Hunting, yeah, did you say deer hunting specifically? Okay, yeah, so we're, now we're talking about our local culture, right? You go to a big city, you know, a bigger city than this area, hunting may not be a big deal for them, right? But for our culture, hunting's a really, really key thing, characteristic of our culture. A lot of people invest money in it, hobbies, time, right? Again, not a bad thing, not a good thing. It's just, it is what it is, right? It can become a bad thing if it consumes us, right? If it takes away from those important things in life, but definitely a defining characteristic of our culture. What else might be another characteristic of our local culture? Yeah, Kelsey. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, financial gain, but that also is reflected in our desire for possessions, right? Material possessions. Um, leisure activities take up a lot of our money, right? Again, be careful. Nothing wrong with going on vacation, right? But it can become a negative thing, right? If it consumes us. But RVs, boats, more cars, cabin, right? We think our culture tells us these are all the things that make us what? Happy. The more stuff, the better you are, the happier you are, right? So it's a part of our culture, okay? Sandra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the size of our, our homes or our possession, like as far as our property, right? We tend to take a little bit of like, hey, this is, we can have this. I think somebody who was just, somebody was just talking to me about where they live and there was not really much land. They weren't used to that. But then when they were in more of this kind of area, they were blown away by the size of people's property. They couldn't believe that somebody could have that much acreage to themselves when they're used to coming from an area where it's like, you've got this little city lot and that's it. So for somebody to have 20 acres or 40 acres, they were just like, they couldn't even process that, okay? So that's a part of it too. Like the difference is there, right? Yeah, John. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So children can take a huge role as far as their interest in things, and it can almost become an idol. It can, it, it's not wrong to focus on our kids, but it is wrong to elevate it to a point it's unhealthy, right? Now, Sarah, was that your answer, and he just took the credit for it, or? Oh, okay. Because your hand went up, and then you went, and I was like. <laughs> What's that? Oh, yeah. Yep, that's a huge part of our culture, right? Again, what a great way to provide for our families, provide for needs, but it's a big part of our culture. Absolutely. We're an agricultural culture, right? That's a big part of it. Any other ideas? Quickly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, farming and stuff like that, absolutely. What's that? Okay, we're a culture that spends a lot of time working, right? Absolutely. Sometimes more than we should, right? 60, 70, 80 hours a week, which ties back into what? That material possession stuff. Some people have to work 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week. Some people choose to work 60 hours a week, okay? You don't have to, but you choose to because you want the stuff, right? But our culture pushes work, okay? And that's nothing wrong with working. working. Work is a blessing from God, right? Work was not a result of the fall in the garden, right? When God was giving out the punishments for sin, work was not part of that. Work was pre-fall, right? Now, though, the work is going to be more tiring. It's going to be uh, more difficult, right? But work itself is good. But again, in our culture, it's almost like the ones who overwork and work themselves to the bone, they almost wear that as a badge of honor, Right? Like, oh, well, I'm a man because I worked 80 hours this week. Great. You haven't seen your children. You haven't seen your family. You're not connected to the local church, but way to be a man. Right? Because our culture thinks that's what a man is. So in this, in this area, right? Any other thoughts? And then we're going to move on. Sandra. Sure. Yeah. So in our local culture, the political leanings are one way. In other cultures around Michigan or other local regions, it would be different, right? So our political leanings tend to be more conservative in our culture, right? More family-driven, right? Again, good things, right? But again, could become something that becomes an idol in our lives, right? So, so here's the point of all this. Some of these things we shared is, is across our nation, these are cultural things our whole nation shares in. Some of these things are local to us. But a lot of these things can be really, really good, or they can become really, really bad. That's the point of this. Is that, and there's some things, by the way, that are just neutral. Like getting together on a Sunday and having a big family dinner on a Sunday, that's cultural. Not everywhere you go in the world do they sit down and have a big Sunday dinner. That would be really strange to some cultures. Some cultures, they have big family dinners every day of the week. In some cultures, it's not uncommon to have grandparents and even great-grandparents all living in the same home with your family, okay? In our culture, that would be only in the case of, usually, it's, well, so-and-so needs help, or they're not in good health, and so we moved in or they moved in with us. But in some cultures, it's the family just all stays together, right? So these are, again, cultural things, not necessarily bad, not necessarily good, just culture, now, the book of Daniel, let's give you a little background here so we can kind of walk through the study. The book of Daniel was written during what time? Does anyone know what time, what was going on in the nation of Israel while Daniel was being written? What's happened? Zach. Yeah, they're in the Babylonian captivity. Okay, and so this covers a period, and I don't have handouts for you guys. Um, and this is up to you, I guess. Okay, I, I tend to do a lot of handouts. Okay, I don't care. I like doing them. I'm fine with them. But I, I know sometimes it's a lot to keep up with notes. And you probably have piles and piles of papers at your house that you're just like, please, no more notes. Please, no more papers. Okay. So what I was going to do was for this study, take a little bit of a break from handouts. But obviously, if you would like a copy of my notes, I can send those to you if you want to keep up on that. And if you would like as a group to have notes and handouts, I can make them up. Um, no worries, but it's up to you guys kind of. So for tonight, for sure, I don't have a handout for you, but moving forward, just let me know if you're like, hey, I'd kind of like handouts. Let me know, and then we can adjust to that as well, all right? So Daniel was written. I'm just going to give you some background here. You don't need to write all this down, but just give you some background here. Uh, it covers a period of about 70 years. 
just shy of, actually, um, from Nebuchadnezzar's first conquest of Jerusalem in 605 BC to around the third year of the Persian king Cyrus in 536 BC. Chapters 1 through 6 are historical, meaning they inform us of events that happened to Daniel and a few other young Hebrew exiles in Babylon. Chapters 7 through 12 are considered prophetic and record four visions given to the elderly Daniel at this point concerning the kingdoms of this world and God's coming kingdom. So part of the book is historical. These are events that really took place that record the situation of what was going on with the exiles in Babylon. The rest of the book is considered prophetic. It's forecasting out uh, visions that Daniel had involving the kingdoms of this world and the coming kingdom of the Lord. Several purposes can be discerned for the book of Daniel. First, as chapters 1 through 6 demonstrate, Daniel recorded some of the history of a group of Jewish exiles who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, Daniel himself was a member of this group. Uh, Second, that last half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, reassure God's people that while the kingdoms of this world will come and go, God is moving the course of human history along his desired goal. And that, to me, is the most encouraging truth from Daniel. I'm going to read that again. I love how the author of this study put this. That while the kingdoms of this world will come and go, empires fall and empires rise and empires fall. This happens throughout all human history. As those come and go, God is moving the course of human history along to his desired goal. I said it a few weeks ago. It seems as though it's chaos in the world. But if it was chaotic, that would imply there's no one in control. So it's not chaotic. That's not what's happening. It seems like chaos. But it's people who are strongly confused and under a delusion of the enemy. God is in very much control of what's happening here. A third purpose of Daniel's book was to provide insight and guidance and principles to God's people to the extent of cultural accommodation they properly could make in a dominantly secular society that often was hostile to their faith. So they live in a hostile culture to the things of the Lord. Okay, Babylon was not a Christian area. It was not anything at all Christian. And so these Hebrews are now kind of forced into this environment. And they have to begin to decide and, and kind of discern, okay, where can we assimilate? Where can we get along with this and do that? And where can we not? So again, Daniel was among a group of Israelites who found themselves living in a foreign land among foreign people. The best and brightest of Israel had been sent to the cultural center of the Babylonian Empire with the intention that they will be assimilated into the culture. If you were intelligent, if you were good with music or the arts or science, or you just seem to be very intelligent, you were kind of separated out from the common group of Israelites and they set you aside and they were going to train up and and kind of indoctrinate these individuals so that the Babylonian culture would spread. So here's what they're trying to do. They don't necessarily want to get rid of the Hebrew culture. What they want to do is take people who have this Hebrew culture and this wisdom and this intelligence and infuse the Babylonian culture into it. And this happened a lot in the, in the uh, times of conquering and, and with the Greeks or the Romans. They would usually try to assimilate them into their culture. Why? Because their goal is you'll think like us. You'll talk like us. You'll act like us. And we're spreading out into the world our culture. And this happens all throughout human history. We've done it to other places. 
We have assimilated other cultures into the American way of thinking, and we do it primarily, I believe, for financial gain a lot of times. This is why when we were in Mexico, it didn't matter what little village we were in. I mean, we're talking very impoverished areas. We would be on this little dirt road, this little shack of a house, and there was this little tiny Coca-Cola tin outside of it. And we were with the missionary, and he looked at Sandra and I and some others, and he said, you guys want a Coke? It's like a thousand degrees, okay? It's, I'm literally sweating. He, made, he had all of us wear khakis and a polo. The guys had to wear khakis and a polo. The girls had to be in like ankle length skirts and dresses, okay? It's August. We're like four hours from Cancun. It's literally like a hundred and something degrees. He says, do you want a Coke? Yeah, I want 17 Cokes. And I, yeah, I, I want to just bathe in the cooler that has the Cokes. I said, of course, yeah, that'd be great. He goes, okay. So he goes in this little tiny shack and he walks up to this cool and there's a, there's a cooler, a slide cooler. He pulls out a couple Cokes and sets them on the counter. This little older woman comes out from the back. He puts the pesos on the counter and he goes out. She goes back in the back. We get our Cokes. And I was like, what in the world just happened? That's how she makes her living. Just having that little Coke tin out front and selling Coca-Cola. She gets money from Coca-Cola to do that. But that's an, an example of our culture influencing their culture. There was a point where that culture didn't know what Coca-Cola was, didn't care what Coca-Cola was. This is why you go to other countries, you see McDonald's and all these countries. Why? It's the American westernizing of these cultures. And so we've done it. Others have done it. It's not a new thing. And so here the Babylonians want to kind of draw in this best of the Hebrews for the purpose of assimilating them into their culture so that if they go back to Israel, they're going back with that Babylonian culture, and it's going to influence how they move forward. But here we see that Daniel intended to follow the plans of God rather than the intentions of the Babylonians. So we're going to go into the book of Daniel. Now that we've got a really good background and idea of where we're going, Daniel chapter 1, and we're just going to read verses 3 through 7. So if I can get a volunteer that would like to read that for us, that would be great. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Who would like to read that for us? Going once. I'm just going to pick someone. Okay, Kelsey. Yes, so Daniel 1, 3 through 7. Eunuchs. All right. Thank you, ma'am. No, you gave 100% effort. I applaud that. That was awesome. Yeah, great job. Yeah. Sorry. 
No, no, you're not at all. That's, it's the Old Testament. When you get to names, just go that guy, that girl, that person. We're fine. Um, so, so here we see, and if you are, uh, have notes and you're taking notes, and again, if you want notes sent to you, I can do that too. Uh, here we see an example of what we battle in the culture today. And we see the example that the world, now in this case, the Babylonians, but in our case, the world expects us to conform to its expectations, right? That's really what the cultural norm is. We're just going to all conform to the world's expectations. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, you caught that, right? That Daniel and the Hebrew, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were sought after. Why? Because they were smart. It says they were cunning. That's not a negative thing. We hear cunning, and if you're like me, you tend to think of the serpent in Genesis because the serpent was more cunning than the rest of creation. I heard an amazing uh, talk on this from a professor at Dallas Theological when I was doing this little online free class thing. And he said this, and I never thought about this way, that the serpent's ability to be more cunning was not a result of Satan taking over the serpent. That that was actually God making that creature more cunning. And I never thought about it that way. It was when Satan took over or became like the serpent, that that's when the cunning was used for sinful reasons. And I never thought about that. I always kind of just instantly thought, oh, more cunning because it's Satan and it's to divide or deceive us. But someone who's cunning, what does it mean to be cunning? What's that? Okay, gifted, sure. Quick-witted, yeah, clever, okay. Some people might even call it kind of like this idea of uh, ability to look at a situation and figure out the best solution really fast, right? Problem solving. Sandra? Okay, yeah. We think of it in the negative way of like sly or sneaky. We think of like, the, you know, Jacob, that he was a trickster, that kind of cunning. But cunning just means that you're a little crafty, a little wiser, a little smarter, right? You can kind of figure things out a little quicker. And this professor at Dallas pointed out something that I thought was interesting. He said he believed, and again, this isn't definitive, but he believed that the reason the serpent was more cunning was to grow Adam and Eve in their wisdom. Remember, Adam and Eve, this is a big misconception that people have. Adam and Eve were not created perfect. Only God is perfect. If they were perfect, they could have never fallen into sin. But God made Adam and Eve innocent. And yet, we see Adam and Eve growing in wisdom, growing in knowledge. The same professor pointed out in, in the description of the Garden of Eden, it talks about there being precious stones and you know, materials being used and things like this. And he posed the question, why would God put that there? What is, what's the purpose of that? And his opinion was that it would grow Adam and Eve and their appreciation of beauty. Their ability to appreciate aesthetic value and worth of something. And so again, I, I, it's interesting when you see this. So these individuals were cunning, not in a negative way, but they were smart, quick-witted. Okay, They were intelligent. And as they're brought in, they're also something else. Because they, they're being taught the science of the Babylonians, right? That doesn't say they reject that. They also receive different names. Now, what's Daniel's name changed to? From Daniel to what? Belteshazzar. Does anyone know, if you've ever studied this out, what that name is referring to in a general sense for the Babylonians? Yeah, so the name Bel there, Belteshazzar, Bel is referring to an idol of the Babylonians. So Daniel 
willingly receives. He doesn't reject it like he does the meat. He receives and allows them to call him a name that invokes the name of a foreign or I mean a false God. So in Daniel's understanding, that does not violate God's law because he says, I'm not going to eat that. That would violate God's law. Now, Daniel doesn't believe in this God. Daniel's not worshiping this God. But do you notice that Daniel doesn't reject that name? By the way, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. I'll never forget when I was at school, down in college. uh, I've mentioned him before, but some of you actually heard about him at a women's retreat. Um, A friend of mine from school, Stephen Corey, who pastored in Israel, and as far as I know, is still pastoring there. I haven't talked to him in a a few years, but um, he preached a message on this. And when he said in the appropriate Arabic and all of that, and he read these names, I was just like, you could stop right now. That was just the coolest thing ever, you know. He was born 10 minutes outside of Bethlehem. And so, I mean, this is his culture. He understood this from a whole different perspective than I would have ever understood it. But when you think about that, we refer to them in their Babylonian names more than we do their Hebrew names. And so, again, they don't reject that. They don't see that as a violation. But when the expectation to conform to something violates God's word or God's law, that's when they decide we need to draw a line Nobody asked Daniel and the others what they would like to learn to eat or even if they wanted their names to be changed. They live in Babylon now and this is what it is. This dynamic should feel familiar to us because like these Israelites, believers in Christ find themselves living in a culture with all kinds of expectations. As believers, we have an unchanging source of truth. It's not in our nature to fit in. It is in our nature as children of another kingdom to stand apart. So we're just going to be expected to just go with the flow, just to stand in with the culture and and not make waves. And there's going to be times we just accept it. Okay, this is just part of our culture. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not going to go along with it, but I'm not going to cause a scene with this. But then there's other things where it's, no, we need to stand against this because this violates a principle of God's word. And so another question here, in what areas do you find your Christian worldview challenged these days? In what ways or in what areas do you find your Christian worldview challenged these days? Anthony. Sure. Right. Yeah. So in in the school system, they teach evolution, which obviously Christian students would disagree with. But they don't get up and ask Anthony, hey, is it okay if I teach evolution today? Right? It's just an expectation. You're just going to go with the flow. Okay? What other areas are, are, is our Christian worldview challenged? John. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so even in products and, and how they sell a product. It used to be we just sell you this whatever because it's the best one we think and we make it good and so buy it. Now it's we sell this with all this other stuff. And so it challenges our worldview of by buying this, am I actually going against this and standing up for that? And Yeah, so it gets really, all of a sudden it's like it's just not buying a Coke anymore, right? Alex. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Our culture right now and specifically our culture as a country, we're being... The expectation is that you will conform. You're just going to say, if you say that's a girl, then I'm going to call it a girl. Or a boy, a girl who's a boy and wants to be a girl. Whatever, okay? We're going to go with the flow, right? We're just expected to do that. Sandra. Sandra. 
Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything to do with dating, marriage, intimacy, uh, it's just expected that the cultural norm is it doesn't matter, right? Live together before you're married, have children before you're married, doesn't really matter. It's fine. The culture says this. And if there is one thing, one of those things that we just talked about just now that I see is more prevalent even in the Christian circles over the last so many years of ministry, where when I started off in getting saved and going to Bible college, I didn't see or hear about it as much, but now being in ministry for a while, it's Christians, two Christians, saved individuals, living together before they're married, having children before they're married, no big deal. Who cares? Intimacy before marriage, because it's whatever, it's fine, it's no big deal. You've seen where the Christian mindset and worldview has completely conformed to the worldview culture, or the culture of the worldview around us, instead of staying true to the biblical worldview. So yeah, gender identity, marriage, dating, right, intimacy, all of that. Um, product selection and how that's just completely pushed on us. Evolution being pushed. Uh, politics, we can go there too, right, Claudette? Yes, exactly. Yeah, the abortion issue. That it's, again, it's just culturally accepted that you should just be okay with this, right? And if you stand out against it, notice it's not, oh, you disagree with abortion. It's you hate people, right? You hate that person. And then they'll use a very emotionally driven argument a very extreme example of not what the majority of abortions are and try to make you almost feel guilty for even saying you're pro-life, right? And again, it's a cultural thing and our Christian worldview is being challenged in that arena. Absolutely. Someone else's hand was up. Sarah. Okay. Yeah. I get you're just going to accept it, right? Like, don't question it. Don't challenge it. Just take this, okay? No one's asking, what do you think? It's you, you do this or you hate everyone else and you want everyone to die, right? It's, again, those kind of tactics that are being used, right? So in these examples that we see, we can understand a little bit better what Daniel's going through. He's uprooted from his home, not of his choice. He's brought to another foreign land. By the way, This is foreign to him. It'd be like you being taken from your home to a completely different culture, country, language, everything, plopped down. And this is now, you're going to adapt to this. You're just going to go with the flow. He's taught their science. His name has changed. All of this is happening. And again, not of his choosing. No one asked him. He just finds himself in this culture. In the next few verses, we'll see the importance of drawing the line where we will not compromise. Drawing the line where we will not compromise. So again, this idea of developing strong convictions draws us to kind of the key principle of this lesson, this, this study tonight. Our convictions, not our circumstances, define who we are. Our convictions, not our circumstances, define who we are. What do I mean by that? We hold our convictions based in God's word as followers of Christ, and we don't change them based on the circumstance we find ourselves or whether or not others are in agreement with it. We stand on the truth of God's word as best we can by his grace. So this idea of drawing the line where we will not compromise. Let's look at Daniel 1, verses 8 through 13. So we see here they were gonna, told they were going to be given the, the king's meat. And Julie alluded to this a few minutes ago, but 8 through 13, if I can get another volunteer who'd like to read that portion of scripture for us, verses 8 through 13. Who'd like to read that? Alex, awesome. 
No joke. I was actually, if no one raised their hand, I was going to call on Alex anyway. I was just going to be like, oh, Alex, thank you for raising your hand. Then you did, and I was like, okay, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. That's awesome. All right, 8 through 13, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. So here we see that moment. Okay. They've taken the names. They're learning the science. They're learning the language. They're, they're assimilating with these things. And then part of this was also, okay, we're going to give you, and when it says the king's meat, this is the best of the best. We're going to give you the diet that the king's partaking of. We're going to give you good food. Like this is like the best restaurant, the best meal options. It's, they're not making them eat bread and drink water. They're not trying to impoverish them. They're treating them. This is actually a kindness the Babylonians are showing. Now there's a little bit of, I've always read this as a little bit of a, a kind of a dual purpose in this. They want to do it so that they can probably butter these guys up and then they're going to be more likely to adapt to their culture. So this is not a bad thing. The, the Babylonians are not like, you know, evil laughing in the background. Oh, they're going to make them eat this meat. They're culturally doing what they would do. You're the best of the best. We want to bring you in and treat you. So I don't know if you've ever read it that way, but this is not the Babylonians being evil or vile or or vicious, trying to get them to sin against their God. They don't know their God. So they don't understand that asking them to do this is a violation of their law. They don't care about the Hebrews' law or their God. They have their own gods to worship. And so they do this. They bring them in. And Daniel's response is, no, we can't do that. So the second kind of main point of our study tonight is that the first being that the world expects us to conform to its expectations. The second truth we need to understand is that we need to draw the line where we will not compromise. We draw a line where we will not compromise. Now, Daniel here makes a definitive statement. We cannot do this. Perhaps Daniel drew the line at his diet because there were specific Uh, prohibitions in the law of God regarding what to eat and what not to eat. Even so, how did Daniel share this drawing of the line with this prince of the eunuchs? Was he respectful? Was he disrespectful? Was he humble? Was he arrogant? How did he describe, or how did he kind of explain the situation to the prince of the eunuchs? He requested. So what does that tell us in his demeanor? He was respectful, right? He's not arrogant and cocky and I can't believe you'd ask me to do I, I can't do that. He just kindly, and maybe because, and I'm reading in a little bit, but maybe because 
he understands, they don't get this. The eunuch doesn't even, the prince of the eunuchs doesn't understand what he's asking Daniel. So Daniel's kind of in a, in a gracious way saying, listen, I'm sure you think you're doing the best for us, but we can't eat of this. So we're requesting, can we not eat of this? Now, what's the prince of the eunuchs concern? Okay, more than just get in trouble. He says, you endanger my head. <laughs> and, and what's he fearful of? If they don't eat the same diet that they're supposed to be eating. They're going to look sickly. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly it. They're going to look malnourished. And when they go before the king, they can't look that way. Remember, in this culture, when you go before the king, you are best of the best. You are, you know, pressed and, and clean and ready to go. And you use your best manners. Because if you mess up, say the wrong thing, look the, the wrong way, you could lose your life. Do you remember when in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes before the king? And the king notices something about Nehemiah's demeanor. What was it with Nehemiah? He looks sad. You're not supposed to look sad before the king. Because if you look sad and the king sees that, what might happen with the king? He might get sad. And we can't make the king sad. Okay. By the way, if the guy could take your head, if he's in a bad mood, make him happy. <laughs> Always happy. Like, hey, how's it going? Everything's great. Okay. So here we see this happening as a cultural thing here. So, so Daniel understands this man is putting his life on the line. And he's trying to be gracious and yet still hold to what God's word says. So he suggests a proposal. Hey, how about this? Give us 10 days. Give us 10 days. And at the end of that 10 days, if we don't look like others who are eating of the meat or better, then, then we can reevaluate this situation. But give us 10 days. And this is what happens. He's given the time. Like Daniel... We'll encounter places in which cultural norms and expectations contradict the law of God. But we can draw a line with the character, kindness, and confidence of the children of God. So again, we're going to come into situations. We have to draw a line here. But we don't do it arrogantly as, as jerks for Jesus, right? And try to, you know, grandstand in some way. We're humble and we're gracious, but we speak truth. So, how do we, how do you distinguish between matters of preference and issues of conviction? How do we distinguish between matters of preference and issues of conviction? Because we all have preferences, right? We all have things that we think this is how it should be. That may just be a preference, though. But then there's also convictions. And so, how do we distinguish between those two? Kelsey. Sure. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's perfect. So we go to the word about whatever we're struggling with. So whatever thing, expectation, our culture is pushing on us, we go to the word. Okay, does the Bible definitively spell this out one way or another, okay? Sometimes, though, in Scripture, there's not going to be a definitive book, chapter, verse where it just literally says, thou shalt not, okay, or thou shalt, okay? And again, remember, pause this for just a moment. When we talk about the law of God, when we talk about the commandments of God, we understand as New Testament Christians, the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
we are not under dietary law. Okay? We are not under the ceremonial law. So we don't have to do the sacrifices and all the ceremonial things and the, the customs that you read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. We're not under the civil law because we're not Israelites living in Israel as God's people. Okay? So understand, we follow the moral law of God not for salvation, but as a guidance, as a guide, as a director to what would please God. And we read the rest of the law, as Paul says, as a schoolmaster, one who's taught by these past revelations of God. So when we talk about the law of God, this is where, again, we can get so tripped up. Some Christians will pull verses out of the law. And this is why some of you, maybe growing up in more conservative churches, were told the Bible says you can't get a tattoo. And they'll quote you a verse from the Old Testament. And the Bible says you can't, uh, you know, you can't do that, wear that. I just heard one about um, women can't wear pants because the Bible says a man's not to look like a woman and a woman like a man. And then they'll preach against women wearing pants. And they'll do this. They'll pull these verses out. Okay. Some of you are sinning right now. I can't even look at you. It's just ridiculous. But when you think about it, they're, they're pulling these verses out. We have to be so guarded against misinterpreting the word of God. Okay? If it's a law passage and it's intended for the Israelites in the land, we take the principle of that passage and say, okay, what's the spirit of this? What's the heart of this? Do you know why the Bible says not to get a tattoo in the specific context of what it was saying in the Old Testament? It was related specifically to idol worship because they would mark themselves. They didn't call it tattoos. There was no cultural tattoos for just looks. It was usually marking yourself of a god or a deity. When it says you're not to pierce yourself through, some have used that to say that women shouldn't wear earrings because you're piercing yourself through. That's not what the text is talking about. What's it talking about? Literally piercing, cutting yourself in worship to an idol. Do you remember the story of Elijah and all the prophets of Baal? What were they doing? It said they were cutting themselves. That they were piercing themselves through. The law says, no, no, no. You stand separate in worship to God. Don't worship like the, the rest of those uh, people groups worship. And so here, when we talk about the word of God and the law of God, we take the principle of these things. Be careful when somebody starts taking an exact verse of the law and trying to force it on you as a, as a requirement or a conviction. Okay? So I just wanted to kind of make that clear because I know we're referring to Daniel. He talks about the dietary law. He's under the law. He's submitting to that. But the heart of this, we can still pull out, right? We follow God despite what it might cost us in this world. And so when we talk about convictions, as Kelsey said, does the Bible definitively either spell it out or give us a basic understanding of what we should think and do in that situation? If it doesn't spell it out, then what do we do? Well, then we seek wisdom from God's word. We seek wisdom maybe from other followers of Christ. We pray, and it may not be a biblical conviction that, we're all under, but it might be a personal conviction that I hold. And questions we ask are things like, how will doing or not doing that grow me in Christ? How will doing or not giving into that, giving into that or not giving into that, how will that help others to grow in Christ? How will that hinder others walk with Christ? This is a big thing with alcohol in Christianity today. Again, it's more and more rampant for Christians just to have no problem with drinking alcohol. Well, you know, brother, the Bible says that, that Jesus drank wine. He, he blessed wine. He turned water into wine. And Paul tells Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Wine is not Jack Daniels. <laughs> wine is not 
Budweiser or Miller Lite. Wine is wine. Some Christians will say, oh, it's just grape juice. I disagree with that. The word in the Greek is wine. There's no magic word for grape juice in the New Testament. It's wine. But yet again, so many Christians go, well, but the Bible doesn't say I can't drink. And in fact, the Bible says drinking a little wine is okay. But again, the question isn't, can I? The question should be, should I? And how does drinking this help me in Christ? How does drinking this hinder others' walk with Christ? So again, these are things we have to walk out. These are biblical things that are laid out, but yet have a personal conviction to them. Second question I would ask as we're thinking about this. How can we determine when to compromise and when to stand firm? Kind of a similar tying in with the last question. But how can we determine when to compromise and when to stand firm? Yeah, Zach. Yeah. Hundred percent. That is, that is a great example. Yeah, I love the way you phrase that. That there are times that God will, there's general biblical convictions we all should hold to, but then there's personal convictions the Lord might bring into our lives so that we won't give in to a sin issue. But as the Lord grows us and matures us and we have victory over that, that temptation is beginning to be removed, that conviction may change. That's a, that's a great point. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? How can we determine when to compromise and when to stand firm? Kelsey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Proverbs talks about that, right? Like if you argue with a fool long enough, no one's going to know who's the fool, right? When they're looking out from the outside in. So avoid arguing over things that don't need to be argued about, right? If, if it's not that big of a deal, just be willing to say, okay, maybe you even just agree to disagree, but we don't need to argue and fight over some of those things. If they're not clear-cut, dogmatic convictions, right? If someone tells me, well, I don't know if I believe this or that about Christianity. Okay, we can agree to disagree. If someone says, well, I don't believe in Jesus Christ's existence. Well, we might have to have a conversation about that a little bit more, you know? So again, we can draw those lines. In the next verses, and we need to get going here. Man, nobody should have given me till 7.15. They should have told me it stopped at 7, because when I know I've got 15 extra minutes, we're going to soak them up. All right. In the next verses, we see the importance of serving and standing for the Lord no matter what the culture does. So, Daniel 1, 17 through 19. One more volunteer that would like to read for us. Daniel 1, 17 through 19. Who would like to read that for us? Sandra, thanks. She's, we caught eyes and I was giving her that look like, you going to raise your hand? You should raise your hand. You better raise your hand. Just kidding. All right, 17 through 19.
Okay, so what happens when they bring them before the king? How's the king viewing them? Is it positive or negative? It's positive, right? Again, it seems as though the little experiment worked, right? There's no issue here. Daniel now lived in a culture and society that placed great emphasis on visions and dreams and their interpretation. So this was an important gift from God to Daniel that would help him significantly as the years went by. So our third truth that we want to hold on to this evening, serve and stand for the Lord no matter what the culture does. The king was so impressed by these men that he employed them in his direct service. Daniel chose to trust and stand firm and left what happened next in the hands of the Lord. Now, pause for a second. Daniel says to the prince of the eunuchs, hey, give us this diet. We'll be fine 10 days. And the eunuch says, oh, prince of the eunuchs says, okay. Now, we know the prince of the eunuchs was concerned because he was endangering his own life. We don't read that Daniel was concerned. It does say that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself or defile himself before the Lord or violate God's law. But I don't know about you, but that 10 days, there might be a little anxiety in my heart and mind. Uh, Lord, I, I trust you. I believe. I know that we're doing the right thing, but I'm praying that it will work out. And if we're honest, sometimes we know we're standing firm on the word of God. We know because not arrogantly, but God has revealed it to us that this is the way we should live. And we're deciding to live that way. And maybe as an individual or as a family, you're doing this. And then as that conviction is, is planted and rooted and you're walking in that, you start kind of hearing things and seeing things. And maybe other family members don't quite get what you're doing or why that's such a big deal. And you might even hear some negative things. And if you're like me, at some point you're going to start going, Lord, I know, we're, I, I know I'm in the right. I know I'm doing what you want me to do. But I, I just pray that I'm in the right. We know what we're doing is right, but we see the culture, we see the world around us, we see other believers, and they're compromising, and they're doing all this, and you're thinking, okay, Lord, I, I'm pretty sure we're in the right here. And this comes up a lot around the holidays. A lot of times when you go to family dinners, or you have people over your house, or people start talking, my kids don't go there, nope, my kids don't do that, nope, my kids aren't going to do that. Culturally odd, <laughs> your family, or you as an individual, maybe. And so sometimes when we stand on what we know is right, we're going to be tempted to compromise because we're so afraid. Okay, maybe I'm the oddball out. Maybe I should give in. But we never compromise. We never give in just because the culture says we should. Just because other believers don't get it. And I've said that before to families. When I've had families talk to me, moms and dads or whatever, and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, we don't really want our kids doing X, Y, or Z, but my parents or my extended family think that's really weird. And so are we being weird and no, you're being parents and you're guarding them and you're setting a good example for them. And also realize, again, biblical convictions, personal convictions come into play with how we treat our spouse, how we raise our children. You might have family members that have no problem with their children watching things that you wouldn't put before your children's eyes. By the way, if you don't put it before your children's eyes, I probably wouldn't put it before my eyes. This is a good rule of thumb, right? And so again, we, we hear these things and we think, ah, oh, Man, maybe I should just like lessen my stand just a little bit. I wouldn't stand out as much. No, it's a good reason to stand out when we stand firm and serve the Lord in what he calls us to. History is full of faithful believers who also stood but didn't have the same kind of results. We read the story of Daniel, 
the three Hebrews, we're like, oh man, look how God used them. Tremendous how God used them because they stood. But you know how many countless nameless followers of God or Christ, you'll never know their story. But history is full of these examples of people that just stood for God. And yet their stories weren't written down. Maybe nobody really paid attention, but God knows everyone by name. And so again, the call is clear in the Lord. Stand faithfully and entrust the rest to him. Because the truth is you may stand for the Lord and lose in this world's eyes. You might be called a fool, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Last question as we get ready to pray. What are some things that help us stand firm in our convictions? What are some things that help us as followers of Christ stand firm in our convictions? Yeah, Julie. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. We have to be in his word and know his word to stand confidently on his word. Right? We, the more we know the Father, the more we'll lean into that and understand that's where he's calling us, and so we'll stand better. Right? Um, I think, real, real quick, I think it was, was it you that told me when you used to teach, before you told a Bible story, you would always teach the kids that this isn't like uh, a fairy tale book that they read? Yeah, 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 and I love it. I, it's, it's not brainwashing. It's, it's a positive indoctrination. But I used to love that you would say that, like, because a lot of the kids in, in Julie taught four and five-year-olds or even a little younger, they get used to reading bedtime stories that are about princes and kings and, you know, kiss a frog and it becomes a prince and all this. And by the way, I have no problem with those stories, whatever, it's just for fun. But I love that she would make a point of saying, now this story that we're going to go through, Jonah, whatever it is, this is not like those other stories. This is God's word. This is truth. And it should be elevated above any other story we read. I used to love that you would do that because I think that changes their thinking on that. Yeah, because in a child's mind, they hear these kind of stories and kind of fantasyful. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So I love that. Uh, Sandra and then Terry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so we stand on his word. We know his word. We, we love him. We pursue a deeper love with him, and that will lead to obeying his commands. Terry? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Decide before you ever get into a situation where you're going to be pushed to compromise. No, I'm standing for Christ, regardless of what happens. I love that. And when you're in the middle of it, that is not the best time to try to come up with your conviction on that. 
right? Sandra and I, and I mentioned all the time, but when we worked with students, we would have different students that would reach out to us about certain situations they found themselves in. And we would always try to encourage them, you're not going to make the best decision when you're in the middle of it. You need to decide before you ever leave your house to go to that party, to get into that car, whatever you're doing, you need to decide in your bedroom when it's you and the Lord, Lord, it's you and me. I'm standing on you and I'm not even going to give into that. Because once you get with the friends and the influence and the peer pressure, you're going to give in if you're not committed to the Lord. So we used to try to harp on that to the students all we could. Because when you get in the middle of it, and this is, by the way, it's true for adults too. This isn't just for kids. But, but when we don't, if we don't have that commitment and that conviction, um, we're not going to stand on it. And that's what we're talking about, convictions. Not emotional decisions, not, not feelings, not, not leanings, convictions. And when we're convicted on something, we will stand on it. If it's just an emotional response, we're going to waver. We're like James, the wave of the sea, right? We're getting pushed here or there. And this is why people, January, right? Why do so many people join the gym? It's an emotional response. No, this is different. No, I, I feel different. Yes, you feel different, but it's not a conviction. People that have success in those kind of commitments, it's a conviction not an emotional response to a turning of the calendar. By the way, this is also true why church attendance in most places goes up in January, levels off by Easter, or gets a little bigger by Easter, levels off just after Easter, and then it's dropped back down by, by May because it was an emotional thing. I go because it makes me feel good. If you attend church because it makes you feel good, you will not attend church faithfully. But if you attend church because it's a conviction as a follower of Christ that I will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, you will attend church faithfully. If you pray because it makes you feel good, you won't pray faithfully. But if you pray because the Bible says pray without ceasing, you'll pray with conviction and passion, and you'll see yourself doing it faithfully. So again, it can't be an emotional response. Emotion's involved. I'm not saying we're void of emotion because that's legalism. That's not biblical Christianity. But we're not driven with, we're driven with convictions of God's word not the emotion we feel about God's word. By the way, have you ever read God's word and not felt very good about it? If you haven't, you haven't been reading God's word long enough, right? Devotions, you're like, really, Lord, this is the chapter you're going to put me in this morning in our reading together, right? You got to bring that up. I didn't want to go there today. I don't feel feel like talking about that. But he's our good and loving heavenly father. So what does that mean? He will bring up the things that need to be dealt with, whether we feel like it or not. And that's good, right? Uh, Kind of in wrapping this up, Every Christian is living amid a culture with different priorities, values, and beliefs. And as much as we try to remain pristine, we will all become a little less bright the more time we spend in the world. Despite this natural dulling, we must remain true to who we are in Christ. We don't beat ourselves up. Some of us might feel like, man, I don't feel like I'm as passionate for Christ as I used to be. I feel like maybe the world's kind of hit me so many times over the years. I'm just a little bit kind of just, I'm just kind of done. I'm just weary. I know it's tiring. It really, really can be, right? And every four years, to me, it gets a little more tiring, right? Every four years, as political things come up again, I'm just like, I just, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want, I don't care anymore. It can be any, this is not, nobody's a good choice right now. Like we have no good choices. So what are we doing? And it just wears on you and wears on you. And you see, Christians saying things that Christians should never say to anybody, let alone another Christian and, and hatred and division. And it just gets like, I get what you're saying, Paul, when you said you want to go home and be with Christ, which is so much better. So I understand living in the world, we're not as pristine as when we first got saved. 
but we don't stop shining our light for Christ. We just keep focused on him. Lord, guide me and direct me in this that I would keep my eyes on you and let that light of Christ shine. And as Sandra said, as we pursue to love him more, we'll obey him and his commandments. All right? Well, let's do this. We're going to pray. I promise next week we'll be done by 7. I can't promise that. What am I doing? Let me rephrase this. I promise I will do my best to end by 7. Okay? That's a little bit better. Yeah. As soon as I said that, the Lord was like, why are you lying to these people? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, again, if you want a copy of the notes, let me know. If a handout helps you, just reach out to me. Let me know. We can do that. I don't care if it's one or two people. We'll make it available. Um, but I thought I'd give you a little break from notes for a while. If you want to take notes, bring a notebook. We welcome, always welcome that as well. So let's pray and we'll let you be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, which is a a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, that we would uh, spend time in your word, Lord, growing and understanding by the working of your spirit what it is that you would have us to stand on as far as convictions. Lord, help us to develop these stronger convictions to stand, even in the midst of a culture that wants to stand against you. Lord, help us to be followers of Christ who pursue you, And we don't just conform to the expectations of the culture around us. But Lord, also help us to realize that there are things in our culture. There are ways that we can still assimilate into our culture. You call us to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not called to isolate away into our churches and hide and in these four walls and never make a difference in the world around us. But you call us to relationships and community. And so I pray that we would balance this out in our own understanding as you lead us and guide us. Thank you, Father, for your individual way that you work with us. As, as was already said, giving us personal convictions that would guard us against those sins that are besetting sins that Hebrews talks about. And Lord, also growing us and maturing us in Christ. And so Father, again, may you be glorified in all that was said and done tonight. Give us wisdom in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you guys.